Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Happy Labor Day, Tyler. Happy Labor Day. 1894, the United States officially recognized Labor Day as a federal holiday. The holiday, however, goes back to the earlier 1880s. And the first Labor Day parade was held in New York City back when it was run by and created by the working people of America, Labor Day. And it's great that we're going to get to do a show for Labor Day today. Long history in our country of laboring and laborers. And I got to say, there's a long history of labor on the American shoreline as well. I mean, yes. you don't, we don't realize it, but places like New York City, Boston, basically all of the major cities of America were major industrial, the waterfronts were major industrial places. The Longshoremen's Union. Yeah, where thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans, many of whom were immigrants, many of whom probably did not speak English, or, yep. you know, were kind of Shipbuilders. new to America. Yeah, bats. where they would get their start on the American shoreline, building uh, features of the coast yep. of, our, of our fleet, all that stuff. Pipe fitters, you know, welders, the entire shipbuilding industry. Uh, a real, yeah, the American shoreline is a bedrock of, has been a bedrock of labor uh, uh, power in America, and uh, it's cool to do a show today. It's it's great. We've got a great guest today to talk about what's going on on labor relations on the American shoreline now with some of the newer emerging industries on the American shoreline, particularly offshore wind, and the uh, recent uh, federal legislation promoting greater uh, power and access for union workers on the American shoreline. So it's a really cool show to do today. Yeah, a lot has changed in those hundred some odd years. Yeah. Uh, but labor is still an incredibly important feature of the American shoreline, specifically in sustainability. In this new bill, thinks about not only environmental sustainability, but there's a social component. And right. the labor piece is just so important. So today we have a killer guest a good friend of mine, uh, to, to come on the show and talk to us about a little bit about specifically the offshore wind uh, implications of the Inflation Reduction Act and what that might do to the labor movement here in Texas and, and probably beyond. Yeah. Joining us on the American Shoreline uh, today is Dr. Bo Delp, the executive director of the Texas Climate Jobs Project. It's a statewide nonprofit organization advancing a pro-climate and pro-worker agenda to build the Texas labor movement. The executive director, Bo Delp, joining us on ASP today. I'm just jazzed. And uh, me too. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Bo and I have had the opportunity to have many great conversations over the years, and I get to share this one with the listeners. Looking forward to it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. 
Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Dr. Delp, this is the only time I'm going to call you Dr. Delp. Bo, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, really appreciate you taking time out to join us on this special Labor Day edition of ASP. Wonderful to be here on the special Labor Day edition of ASP. Well, Bo, uh, it's it's Labor Day, and you are a person who has thought a great deal about labor. And, you know, we don't do a lot of shows. Uh, we, we probably should do more shows about labor. Yeah. But can you introduce our audience just broadly to what what is meant when we say labor and like Labor Day, what that means? Definitely. When we talk about Labor Day, it's an opportunity to recognize that many of the uh, benefits and rights that we have in this country, whether it's a minimum wage, whether it is a 40-hour work week, whether it's having you know basic safety protections at the workplace, things like workers' compensation, insurance coverage, these are things that weren't handed to workers, uh, to, to anybody. Um, these are things that were won and secured over decades and decades of organizing, of civil strife, of protesting, of violence, of peaceful protest. Uh, and, um, and, and so Labor Day is an important day to take stock of where we are in terms of, uh, you know, wealth inequality in this country, racial inequality in this country, uh, and, uh, and where we need to go uh, as, as a country. So in, in the state of Texas, we have 235,000 uh, union members. Uh, and uh, they work in all kinds of different industries, as you can imagine. They are teachers and bus drivers and letter carriers and electricians and laborers and vehicle manufacturers and longshoremen, since they were mentioned earlier, and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shipbuilders and uh, people who, who uh, you know, who are actually on the ship. Um, and, uh, and, and I could keep going. But the point is... Uh, that the labor movement in Texas is diverse as Texas itself. Uh, and so it's got a really rich history of organizing. Uh, and so um, that's what we mean when we talk about the labor movement in Texas and, uh, and what Labor Day means. Well, Bo, thanks for that overview and uh, the focus on Texas, where we're getting to have Tyler a face-to-face uh, -face interview, which is very, very rare since the pandemic started at, very great. at the ASPN studios here in Austin, Texas. That's right. So uh, Bo is here. And I also want to point out for the record, I should have done this in the intro, that today, uh, this Labor Day, is the fourth year of the production of ASPN, Tyler, our first show, which was probably, I think, about 820 shows ago, uh, occurred on Labor Day 2018. So... Congratulations to you as the director of the ASPN Network, Tyler. You've done an unbelievable job over four years. Thank you. No, I. Uh, it's it's crazy when you think about how long it's been. Yeah. Um, and it's really been an honor and a pleasure to do it the entire time. A labor of love, as we say. <laughs> Absolutely. It has been a labor, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> when people ask Tyler and I if we're a nonprofit organization, we say not on purpose, uh, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> uh, so we do this as a labor of love and, and, and to have a chance to talk seriously about uh, labor policy on the American shoreline with an expert like Bo Delp's real pleasure. Uh, Bo, um, we're seeing 
some new industries starting to emerge on the American shoreline. Uh, the wind power industry, uh, which is in its very early stages right now, uh, is going to be a major industrial uh, uh, effort on the American shorelines with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of workers uh, emerging. And I'll just note for the record, Tyler, when you and I were following along with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management's offshore leasing for, uh, for offshore wind power sites in, in February uh, and March, uh, when there were $4.3 billion paid for offshore leases, this is a big time industry, Bob. And uh, I know as a labor organizer, you're interested. Talk to us about what you're seeing coming down the park as new labor opportunities for American workers and why the union movement is so critical to their success. Totally. I think there's so many things to keep in mind with this. Number one, you know, we did a study last year that we published in June with Cornell University. And what we found is that if the state across industries did everything that it needed to do to reduce carbon emissions, uh, whether that be retrofitting buildings, uh, transitioning over to, uh, you know, electric vehicle uh, manufacturing, uh, whether that was, uh, you know, dealing with offshore wind uh, and producing more solar, um, that we were going to be able to create a million jobs. Uh, it's actually 1.1 million across the state. So there's an incredible opportunity uh, beyond reducing carbon emissions, which with the existential crisis we face with climate change is, is uh, you know, critical. But, but we have this once in a generation opportunity to not just reduce carbon emissions, but to think about what our economy in the future is going to look like. And so when offshore wind comes up, it's such a great example. You know, these, I don't know if y'all have seen the actual like offshore wind turbines, but they are massive. They I are. mean, they are approaching the size of a, si a skyscraper. And so uh, these are the monopiles and the turbines. They're so big. They really, many of the components are so big that it's not economical for them to be manufactured in other parts of the world. They really do the monopiles. They need to be manufactured at the ports and you can't just take them out on a tugboat. You need a special ship that can take those skyscrapers out to sea. And so you got to build that ship. And so in Brownsville right now, they're in the process of finishing one of these specialty ships that is going to take these monopiles out. Uh, and, and so the Gulf it's interesting is actually, becoming a big part of the supply chain, not just for this region, but for the Northeast as well. Um, and so we have this incredible opportunity uh, to bring back manufacturing jobs, supply chain jobs. You know, uh, the, the Department of Energy did a, an analysis of the Gulf offshore wind leases, and they estimated uh, that if uh, per lease that that Boehm enters into the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, there's gonna be about 5,000 jobs that are going to be created. Wow. Uh, and so those are construction, actually going out there and, and building it, but there's operational jobs, there's maintenance jobs, there's upgrading the transmission lines, the substations, uh, the ship that I mentioned, um, and, and all kinds of jobs that go along with it. So it really is just an incredible opportunity for the state uh, and when you think about what we just went through with Winter Storm Uri and with the brownouts uh, and the warnings from ERCOT that we need to conserve electricity, we really need this. Th this is, 
you know, potentially millions of homes, energy use that we're talking about in, in terms of kilowatt hours that can be produced. And so uh, it's, it's just an exceptionally rare opportunity that we have before us to inject a lot of clean energy into the grid, to create a lot of jobs, to reduce carbon emissions all at once with offshore wind. So it's very exciting. It really is. I mean, we've been following along, Peter, over the past couple of years as uh, we've watched New York and kind of the Northeast states almost almost like they were competing with each other to kind of get in on it early. Yeah, they were. And uh, we were all kind of wondering what would happen down down here in, in Texas. We saw Louisiana uh, move in that direction. Uh, and I just think it's fantastic that Texas, as a, an energy state, a state that has, you know, when I'm thinking about the... Uh, the Texas economy broadly, you know, as a, as a, as a native Californian, I mean, my understanding of the Texas economy was that, I mean, it was a big economy, but that oil and that energy was the, the kind of the cornerstone of the economy. And in talking to, um, Jim Blackburn, Peter, he sees this whole new Texas economy that actually pivots on this energy space into clean energy. And the offshore wind component is, I think, just because of the amount of power, because these things can be so big and there's enough space at sea to really generate, you know, a, 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 the, an amount of power Gigalots, that is yeah, meaningful, that is meaningful and yeah. that you can really do things with. So the people power behind this bow is the, the interesting thing for you and Look, you know, we like to vision forward, but why is it important for as Americans for us to to want to see this new industry have, you know, a solid labor backbone? Well, and and I, you know, I think that there's a couple of things that I would say to that right now. Number one, I think it's really important because it creates a lot of, uh, and this is you know, enter the Inflation Reduction Act, but but it really does create a lot of high quality blue collar jobs. Uh, we're talking about very technical jobs that require a lot of technical training through like apprenticeship programs. Uh, but, but it, it is the opportunity to, you know, really go through an apprenticeship program to learn a trade, to be an electrician, you know, this whole thing that everybody's got to go to college, you know, everybody's going to take on a bunch of debt, take on, you know, go to college. We all know that, you know, going through department of labor registered apprenticeship program is an incredible incredible program for someone's life changing. You go through five years of on the job training, you earn money while you learn the trade, and then you become a journeyman and you're a plumber or a pipe fitter or a carpenter or a laborer or electrician. And, you know, you've got healthcare and you've got a pension. And so this part of the economy that we have seen hollowed out over the last several decades, mm -hmm. um, is, is really poised for revival and in ways that we haven't seen for a long time. And so when we think about, you know, uh, hydrogen production out, out of these offshore wind leases, um, when that's we, exciting. Yeah. When we think about converting, you know, uh, abandoned oil and gas wells into geothermal, uh, you know, centers of production, which uses, you know, a lot of the same skill set. There's just this incredible opportunity to create really high quality construction jobs, really high quality manufacturing jobs in, in ways that we just haven't seen in this country 
in a long time. And what makes them high quality is is what? Well, for us, there's a lot of things that that make uh, you know a, a job a high quality job. Uh, first of all, you know, just breaking it down, there's a question of how much is somebody earning? How how are they able to take home enough money to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, to live in this economy? I mean, cities like Austin, cities like, you know, Houston, they can be really expensive and paying rent, you know, taking home the groceries, health care. Um, that's another big one is, is do you have not just access to health care? A lot of companies will have a healthcare plan, but the premiums are so expensive you can't afford it. So, you know, do you have a decent wage? Do you have high quality healthcare? Do you have access to a decent retirement program, a pension or a 401k that it's substantial that's going to allow you to retire with some dignity? And then I think the other thing is, uh, and this is, you know, a, a core component of, of, uh, labor organizations and what we're seeing across the country with the resurgence and interest in labor unions. And I'll say Gallup uh, put out a poll uh, maybe like t- a week ago, uh, you know, favorability uh, toward labor unions is at its highest point since 1965. 75% of Americans have a favorable view towards labor unions. And part of that is because what labor unions do is they give people a voice in their workplace. It gives people who maybe initially felt powerless, they have an ability to say, well, I don't want to have an unsafe job. I want to have safety training when I'm building an offshore wind turbine out at sea or when I'm manufacturing an electric vehicle. I want to make sure that I have OSHA 10 safety training. So the ability to shape your own working conditions to file grievances when uh, you're discriminated against or uh, when you're treated unjustly or illegally. These are key, key parts of what it means to have a good job for us. The, the, the American Labor Union has always been dedicated to creating ladders to the middle class. Uh, the people who do the hard work in America, whether it was in slaughterhouses or uh, the, the tough jobs, uh, that working people have taken on over the years. That the, the labor union movement and miners and and, and manufacturing has is, is is advocated for workers, for the justice of workers. It's not about it's not about redistribution of wealth, Tyler. It's about what's fair. And uh, as we open up these new industries that are going to be very profitable, the renewable industry, the rebuilding of the American energy economy, uh, new offshore wind and higher tech. Uh, there's a lot of money that is going to be made here. And the fact of the matter is, without union representation, the people who do the work to build that stuff are going to be left a little bit lighter. And I think the labor union movement, Bo, is critical to making sure that these emerging industries are fairly constituted for workers. Well, can I ask a question? I, I don't believe there's an offshore wind union. I mean, what, what, what? How does that work? Does an existing union kind of envelop? Do, how, how does, uh, how would this landscape incorporate uh, a labor union into it? Well, the good news here is uh, just you know thinking about what it's going to take to develop this uh, offshore wind industry in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, to build those things, you're going to need people who really know what they're doing. There's a high level of technical knowledge that's needed from these DOL registered apprenticeship programs. And DOL registered apprenticeship programs are not uh, union or non-union. There are non-union companies and entities that run DOL registered apprenticeship programs, but they really are the gold standard. Uh, 
every labor union has a in the construction industry has a DOL registered apprenticeship program. So there's going to be electricians that are working on these turbines. There's going to be uh, seafarers uh, who are you know on the taking the ship and the and the components out. There's going to be laborers. Uh, there's going to be um, you know when we're talking about hydrogen or geothermal, we're talking about pipe fitters. Uh, so. There's trades associated uh, that we've used for all kinds of things in, in our current economy that are going to be needed uh, to build this new economy from the ground up. And the exciting thing is people who go through these DL registered apprenticeship programs, they can build anything. I mean, the level of, of, technical, of technical expertise that's necessary to, uh, to, to build this is really what you do get from a DOL registered apprenticeship program. So there's that, there's the manufacturing, there's the supply chain. So there's all these jobs that have existed. And I think this is one more thing I want to say, which is we got to be really, really intentional. You know, we have a boom and bust economy in this state with oil and gas. When times are good, people are making a lot of money. When times are bad, people lose their job. We have to be very intentional as we uh, think about how to make sure that workers are at the voice of that transition and that people who are in the oil and gas industry have opportunities to transition over to these new manufacturing jobs, to these new construction jobs, because we can't just talk about jobs. We got to talk about good quality and union right. jobs. It's called the Texas Climate Jobs Project. Uh, it's an interesting marriage of subject matter, Tyler. I, I think. love the marriage. I do too. I'm a big supporter. Climate Jobs Project. It, so you're bringing together, but I'm just curious. There's a lot of industries in America. There's a lot of emerging industries that are changing and evolving in the U.S. all the time. And here is an organization dedicated to interface of, of what is climate change, the response to climate change, and labor policy and job fairness. How did that start? Where did it start? And is is it a Texas deal or is this something all around the country? Tell us about this connection. You know, it's it's a really interesting story, actually, because it in Texas, uh, it was born out of tension and controversy and conflict because what was happening is you had leaders in this in this state who said that they were pro worker. And that they were also pro climate. And oftentimes what that meant is that when people who were concerned about climate change were approaching the state leaders uh, saying that, you know, we really need to shut the coal power plant down in our community, uh, many of those jobs were union jobs and are union jobs and they're well paid and they have great benefits. And so what was happening is these power plants were getting shut down. And these leaders were, you know, looking for support from from different labor unions uh, to say, you know, hey, we endorse you or we support you. And uh, and so unions began to fight amongst each other. You know, how in the world could we call um, an elected official, an ally of labor unions when they are trying to kill union jobs in a coal power plant? Wow. And so uh, this happened for a while. And uh, and what was so cool is that all these labor unions came together. And I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about bus drivers. I'm talking about, uh, you know, janitors and custodian workers in Houston. And uh, uh, everybody came together, 22 different labor unions, and said, let's put a vision together for what we want climate change, you know, in Texas 
and our response to be, you know, what do we want to do to make sure that we're doing what we need to do? And everybody came to the table for a different reason. Part mm-hmm. of it was, you know, people were losing their jobs, you know, you had steel workers who work in the oil refineries down in the Gulf. You have, you know, uh, electricians and IBW who work in the coal power plants. You have, you know, janitors who live uh, in communities in Houston that are historically underinvested. And so when there's an extreme weather event, uh, in Houston, uh, their neighborhood is impacted first. It's wow. the first to flood. And so you had all these people from all these different backgrounds come together and say, we got to do something about this. And so that's the coalition is, uh, advancing a pro worker, pro climate agenda means putting workers voices at the center of this transition, whatever that looks like and recognizing that we need to do something about climate change, but we also have to do something about income inequality and racial inequality. And by creating these jobs and creating the space for people to form unions uh, allows us to do a lot of things all at once. That's okay. pretty cool, Tyler. Well, it is, and I, I love it. Yeah, I do too. What it, what it is, it's, uh, and I don't mean to, to put a buzz term on it, but uh, I, I, I characterize it in my mind as the Green New Deal, which was kind of this idea to marry uh, some of these kind of social fabric uh, initiatives with the climate change project. And my question for you, Bo, I certainly have thought a great deal about this, but do you think that that is even a, um, maybe I'm tainting, I'm, I'm putting my opinion in the question. <laughs> is it possible to separate those two things? I mean, I, I wonder because, you know, when we're dealing with changing something as foundational to our economy as our energy system with, with oil and gas, we are going to be changing the whole uh, tapestry of our society and our workforce no, and our and therefore our workforce yeah. no matter what and so if we don't think about how things are going to change we will create so much potentially create instability in the transition to you know into to decarbonize or whatever well what i would say to that is just kind of thinking about the green new deal you know a few years ago there was legislation introduced nationally uh, that you know was that's what it was called it was called the green new deal and uh, there were a lot of provisions there and the national AFL CIO, uh, you know, wasn't totally supportive of that. And I think the main reason was because workers were not brought in to the conversation. There are a lot of ideas about, you know, and let's just break this down for a second. I mean, let's think reality. If you are a coal power plant worker and you have a union and you are bringing home enough money to take care of a family, you know, put your kids through college, you have healthcare, you have a pension. Um, and, uh, someone comes along, uh, from Austin, Texas. That's where we are from Austin, Texas and says, we're going to shut your power plant down, but don't worry. We're going to retrain you. And what you're going to do is go out to Pecos and install solar panels. But once that's done, then your job's over. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're done building out the solar farm for a year now, that's a tough sell for most people and understandably so. Yeah. And very so, tough sell. and so one of the things that has been lacking historically is really putting workers at the middle of this transition and listening to workers. What are your experiences? What do you want to see? What does a good job mean to you? We got to stop 
acting on behalf of workers and just listen to people who are being impacted by this transition to think about uh, what this transition should look like in, in a in a good and positive way. You know, it's often called a just transition. What does that actually look like? Well, it starts by listening and by formulating policy uh, around that. And that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, the, the recent legislation that's been coming through at the national level is so exciting and so powerful and potentially so impactful. Yeah, we need, we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed about a month ago, uh, uh, a, a law that is widely understood to be principally a climate change transition bill, uh, one of the a great accomplishments uh, of this administration. Uh, Bo, I'm really curious, though, about this coalition that you've been part of. Um, as you said, it was born out of tension. A transition economically means that there are winners and losers in industries. There are good labor union jobs that are going to be affected, as you say, the coal industry, perhaps others, the emergence of new. I mean, it seems like a very tough uh, 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 chasm to bridge between the perceptions of those who are in the declining industries, the opportunities in the emerging industries. Tell us about, were you involved in the early framing of this and how has that bridge process gone? Is there a developed shared understanding of the, of how labor can, 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 can operate in this transition? It seems like a really interesting challenge. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think that absolutely, uh, you know, I think labor unions uh, here in Texas and nationally have been at the table, especially with this administration, uh, not, not so much with the previous administration, <laughs> uh, in being able to shape what this transition can look like. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so um, excited to, to jump into the particulars, but, but I think that, that, uh, it's it's evidence in the legislation. It's evidence uh, in some of the things that we're starting to see come out of the federal government that uh, workers have been listened to and uh, and their voices have been heard. And there's a lot more left to do, but there are some really, I think, important first steps that are happening. So what what are the top line kind of headlines for you as a labor person when you? examine the IRA? Well, the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's, uh, what is it? $787 billion. I mean, it's a massive, massive mm -hmm. investment of legislation is massive investment, uh, in clean energy, uh, and, uh, and, and jobs. Um, right. one of the big things that sticks out to me are uh, the the tax credits and what's required. Uh, so if if you want to build onshore wind, offshore wind, solar, geothermal, hydrogen, on and on it goes, battery storage in the state of Texas, um, you're going to get a 6% tax credit. If you commit to paying prevailing wages, which is mean, which means if you're an electrician, you get a certain wage. If you're a laborer, you get a certain wage. Uh, and you commit to certain apprenticeship requirements, which means we are actively on this project utilizing individuals from bona fide Department of Labor registered apprenticeship programs. See, what happens in Texas often uh, is that people get called apprentices, but they didn't actually come out of this program. It's just an excuse to 
pay somebody less. Right. Uh, but if you come out of an, a bona fide program and you meet those requirements, that tax credit goes up to 30%. Mm-hmm. The federal government's covering 30%. Really? From 6% tax credit to 30 if you meet the qualifying labor policies in your business practice. That's right. So and it's then, not mandated. It's incentivized. Do it right. Be fair to your workers. The federal government will treat you sweetly. And and there are big uh, big big challenges for companies that try to skirt the rules. Uh, you know those are being drafted right now. But the the headline version is if you decide that you're out in the middle of uh, West Texas and maybe nobody's looking and you can misclassify uh, a worker as an independent contractor, or treat them as an apprentice to pay them less. Uh, the fines are substantial. We're talking $5,000 per worker per day and 10,000 per worker per day if it's willful. So if you have a crew of 10 or 12 laborers and you decide to pay them less than the prevailing wages and you're claiming the tax credit, uh, it will cause you significant headaches. But the good news is that if you follow the rules of the road, if you're an honest contractor um, or if you're a union contractor that already does this because you have a collective bargaining agreement with the union, uh, it gets even better because if you commit to those wages and working conditions, that's one thing. But if you also commit to using domestically manufactured components in your project, you're going to get an additional 10%. If you commit to building your project in uh, a low-income poverty track or in a community that the census has designated as having high oil and gas employment, um you're going to get all the way up to 60 or 70% tax credits for building your project just by doing something wow. that's needed. So there, wow. are, there are massive, massive incentives. And in offshore wind, there's, there's you know, even more heavy investment. You know, there are studies looking how to expand the bone leases. There are significant investments to upgrade transmission, which we all know is like a huge problem in Texas mm-hmm. right now in this state. There are uh, basically a massive queue of solar projects that are waiting to get interconnected to the grid, and they can't because there's not enough transmission capacity. These are the you know the big metal transmission lines that that go along the highway, and um, there's a transmission problem. So it, it between the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA, it really does start to uh, start to address that. So there's just this really exciting uh, series of events. In addition, there are, you know, uh, massive, massive grants that are going to become available through the Department of Energy, through uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. One of the big things is I think there's about $36 billion uh, that are that's set aside for green banks that are going to be lending money to, uh, to projects, guaranteeing loans for certain projects to really make a lot of these perhaps more cutting edge and experimental projects, uh, that, uh, that are tough, you know, in, in the early stages, um, much as, you know, the electric vehicle, uh, sector was tough in its early stages and, mm-hmm. and, and required massive investment from the department of energy to really help that industry mature over the long haul in the state. Well, you mentioned, I think the two bookends of the, uh, uh, the, the the administration's uh, accomplishments in this area, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act back in November, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. These are a, a tremendous uh, policy accomplishments, financial investments in America. The whole notion of building these uh, transition programs in a manner that um, is 
is, I don't know, fair, Tyler, uh, positive for the working people of America is not a problem in my view. It's the appropriate um, exercise in the government's uh, um, incentivization of these new industries that, hey, we're happy to we're happy to work with you. We're happy to make these transitions. These are important for uh, environmental reasons, but we are also going to do it in a way that is conducive to working people of America and the middle class. Um, this is an uh, this is very important policy. For, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'll just say I'm, I'm for it. Well, absolutely. I, and to me, the 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 key thing that I we all have our our buzzwords in our frames, but for me, it's about sustainability. Uh, when we think about climate change and the anthropogenic pressures that we are putting on the planet now, it's not just carbon dioxide. Mm-mm. It's a lot more than that. It's a, it, we are, it's our it's our behavior in its totality. And this this is kind of a new way to think about human activity on Earth. You know, when I was a kid, Peter, uh, <laughs> back in the good old days, yeah, we I was I was raised that basically like air was pretty much infinite and the earth was kind of infinite and you know god kind of gave us the planet to have and there's just it will, mm-hmm. it's like we'll forever give fruit and i think that like basically humanity well, i shouldn't say that i think that there are examples like for example native hawaiians which had a finite amount of resources yeah and yet managed to produce a thriving uh very large scaled society uh, that was sustainable. So it is possible. It has uh, been done. It, ha- it, ha- it has been done. Not so much in a capitalist system where the profit motive is an important driver that we all accept and understand. It's a little bit harder to, to be as careful. Well, I think, I, I, but I, I, maybe, but the, we can account for our costs. We know how to do this. Coastal managers do this all the time when they examine a permit to build a, a beach house closer yeah. to the shore in a dune, and uh, we 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 yeah, figure right. out how to how to weigh that, and ultimately whether to allow it or not. And I think that that's really what's exciting, Bo, about this moment we're in, which is that uh, the last when the, you know a hundred years ago. Uh, when the labor union was beginning or labor movement was beginning, let's say um, there, the infrastructure did not exist that exists today. So when uh, transitions of industry occurred, say the automotive industry is moving out, you know, the, the rust belt story in America, we didn't have the labor, you know, we didn't have the experience, the labor experience. Of we having want, done yeah. That. We let it unravel, I think is, and we kind of like just allowed that to happen. Well, and I think what I would say is, is look, I would add something to, to what you said, which I think is a good point. And that is that this this sustainability question, the, the question around this transition, we, we don't have a choice. We can't leave working people behind in this transition. We, we can't overlook what working conditions are going to look like in this new economy. Let me, let me make something really, really clear. Uh, every decision that any political subdivision in the state makes that doesn't account for how people are going to get paid and whether they're going to have good benefits and whether they're going to have a union, resentment builds. It builds and manifests in all kinds of different ways. You know, when NAFTA was introduced and, you know, the upper Midwest saw an exodus of auto manufacturing jobs, uh, 
plenty of people sat back and said, well, government just doesn't work for me. You know, these are elite people on the coasts in Washington who don't think about me, who don't think about my family. And the backlash uh, has reverberated for decades. Yeah, it has. And if we, and when I say we, I mean, you know, elected officials across the state and uh, policy elites uh, in D.C., uh, if if they decide again to leave workers behind, uh, it's going to be a similar story, just exponentially larger. Uh, you're going to have so many people who are directly impacted by droughts, by hurricanes, who are going to be uh, uh, forced to immigrate to different parts of the country, to different parts of the world because of climate change. They're going to be stuck in poverty jobs around this transition, you know, making you know, $14 an hour with no health care, installing solar panels in the West Texas sun. The resentment builds and people know that politicians didn't have their backs. And so when we think about the coast, when we think about offshore wind, when we think about domestic manufacturing and all of this burgeoning emerging industry that's going to come from the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, from these climate goals that are absolutely necessary, we have to incorporate uh, this question of worker voice. And that means listening to the coal power plant worker. It means listening to the janitor in Houston. It means listening to mm-hmm. the, you know, the auto manufacturer who's being asked to retool and start to think about, you know, building electric vehicles rather than right. gas vehicles. So that's what I'm talking about is when we talk about sustainability and Tyler, I'm so glad you brought that term up. It's, it's worker voice. It's worker equity. We have to bring that into the discussion because there's mm. all kinds of unknown consequences that come from that. Damn. Now here, here, here we are, Tyler. It's Labor Day, and uh, Bo, I think you've made the case. I mean, that looking at the climate transition uh, through the lens of worker, not worker rights, but the perspective of working people, and the social transition that is involved here—not just the mechanical transition of different kinds of power production—we're talking about changing society and changing people's lives. If we don't pay very close attention. To that aspect of this transition, it's a not only a huge disservice to these human beings, but potentially incredibly politically volatile. And we're not we know enough now not to be that stupid. Um, and I'm really inclined, I hope, you know, the Texas but, Climate Jobs uh, Project. Uh, this is what it's about is making sure that, the, as you say, the voices of the working community are central to the transition. I just. You know, you've, you've completely uh, convinced me that that is critical. Uh, well, I, I certainly agree that it is. And I, I think that we actually, you know, Bo, you kind of made a reference that got me thinking, which is kind of the coastal elites. And this is the perception, you know, in America, there's this like flyover yeah. Uh, yeah. part of the country. And then there's this coastal part of the country. And interestingly, the coastal part of the country has... Uh, I'm generalizing here, but uh, the the economy has shifted away from industrial manufacturing, and it, it has it has in uh, internal cities as well. I've, it's a broader American thing, but uh, union activity in uh, American cities is different than it used to be. And what we're talking about is like industrial, like welding jobs, and like you know, this now, is we're going back to the this is kind of a throw building exactly, and. I'm wondering if what your appraisal is for, or, or 
how you would characterize uh, our readiness, our, our coastal readiness kind of psychologically. Are we ready to embrace what you're talking about, bringing these workers to uh, the table throughout this whole transition uh, process? First of all, I don't think we have a choice. I, th- I think that we we have to figure it out, and and I think yeah. that's that's going to take time and a lot of dialogue and a lot of collaboration and a lot of conversation. But uh, this change is accelerating at at a very dramatic pace, uh, especially as a result of some of the recent legislation. And so, how we meet this moment is critical. And so, I think that um, it is going to be. Uh, a dramatic transition. It has been a dramatic transition. And I think that, uh, you know, the what's on the other side, uh, which is, which is uh, you know, creating the conditions for broadly shared prosperity as a result of this transition, uh, where people um, have, a, have a voice in their workplace, they have a union, they have good wages, they have good benefits. I think those are things that most people can agree are important. Most people believe that you shouldn't be discriminated against in the workplace, that you should have, you know, access to a job with a decent wage, to have health care, um, to have a pension. And so I think that those are broadly uh, acceptable now, not universally so. And that's where the tension and conflict is. Uh, and that tension and conflict has existed since before there was ever a Labor Day. Right. Uh, but that's the work is is demanding those things, is organizing for those things. And uh, that's where we are. And so, uh, you know, at this very moment, there are electricians, there are plumbers, there are laborers that are reaching out to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, telling them, don't leave us behind. You know, we, we care about the turtles. We care about the fish, too. But workers matter as well. And who builds these wind turbines really does matter. We need safety. You know, y'all may not know this and maybe you do, but you know, Texas, a construction worker dies once every three days in Texas because of number one on the job industry profession in Texas. Uh, yes. Construction industry, right? I believe it is number one. It's number one in the country. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, when you combine that with the fact that uh, you know, you Texas is the only state that does not require, only state in the in the country, that does not require a company to carry workers' comp. So you know, I have spoken to people directly injured on the job. Boss drops them off at the hospital. Yep. Good luck. Good friend of mine happened in the last year. You got to got a ride to the hospital. Yeah, got to pay your almost own cut bills. his thumb off. Out of work surgeries had no way to make a living as a, as a carpenter yeah as a cabinet maker yeah and when you when you layer you know on top of these really deadly working conditions onshore imagine doing that on the treacherous you know seas uh trying to build uh, uh these massive uh you know infrastructure projects the monopiles and the turbines um it, it can it's going to be really dangerous and so it's really critical that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management hear these workers who live on the Gulf, who work in the Gulf, who are excited about the Biden administration's commitment to this transition and making sure that workers in the middle of it. And they've been really great in other parts of the country. You know, they have really gotten these leases uh, mm-hmm. in, in a good place. And we need to make sure that they do the same here, here in Texas. So we are famously 
uh, Tyler, in, in Texas, one of the leading conservative states in the union in terms of uh, our political influence and our, uh, uh, our development of policy, I think, often followed. Um, so you've been, Bo, you operate here in the great state of Texas. Um, how receptive are state leaders to the discussion of the Texas Climate Change uh, Jobs Project? Um, are, there, are there supporters of this idea on both sides of the aisle? Give us a, kind of a report card. How's our state doing, Tyler? What do you, that's what I want to know. Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to have to turn to Bo. Yeah. Bo, what's it? Well, I look, I go back to something, you know, pretty, pretty central, which is, you know, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed by a pretty diverse group of people in the House and the Senate. Uh, and, yeah, totally. And I think there's a reason for that. And part of the reason is because uh, we've been hearing about job creation for a really long time. And I'll just tell you, unions across the, the state, when we hear about job creation, uh, everybody gets kind of tense because we always wait for the other shoe to drop. The, the question is always, not just are we creating jobs, but what kind of jobs are we creating? Yeah. And I think that, you know, forget everything else. There's pretty broad consensus uh, that uh, that that creating jobs is a good thing. And uh, and then the question is, OK, well, what about job quality? And we start to break it down and think about all the ways that job creation can lead to good outcomes and, and tough outcomes, depending on, uh, you know, what it is. And, and keep in mind, uh, a lot of the you know, a lot of the benefits uh, that we talk about when we talk about a high quality job in the state of Texas, um, if they aren't provided by the employer, they end up being provided by taxpayers. By the public. Right. That's right. And so <laughs> when so so when we're talking about someone who doesn't have workers comp because the employer decided they didn't want to pay the premium every year. And that individual is dropped off at the hospital, uh, mm -hmm. at the county hospital, uh, where where they get stitched up or, or they're, you know, someone tries to save their life. Uh, that costs money. Yep. And someone is footing the bill, and that's the taxpayer. And right. so I think there are a lot of people who, you know, wonder aloud why, you know, what do our taxes go to? And and that's part of it, too. And so there's there's a fundamental question of fairness you know, uh, that, that emerges that really cuts across traditional ideological spectrums. I don't think that I should have to pick up the bill for something that some of the wealthiest corporations mm -hmm. should have done in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and on and on it goes. And, and so when people who retire, only have social security and, and they're, you know, uh, forced to, uh, you know, take assistance from the state. There are all kinds of examples where really if companies just did the right thing, it would be easier on everybody. And that's, that's the fight and that's the struggle. And I think that there's a broad group of people that believe that. Okay. Both sides of the aisle. Uh, we, we've all heard, uh, you know, uh, working people say, I'll use I'll use Walmart an example because there have been investigations of the percentage of Walmart work, uh, Walmart workers who are on food stamps, for example, uh, they're not getting paid a, a living wage, and that that gap is paid for by the taxpayers through government subsidies, and this is one of the fundamental 
things that we're talking about. The appropriate thing to do is to pay the people fairly enough to, to live and to feed themselves and to, and to have a decent life. Uh, and, and Walmart is an incredibly, this isn't about whether they can afford to pay people, it's that they don't choose to pay them as well as they can. It, the, the Walton family is extraordinarily successful and I wish them the best. Pay your damn workers, and I'm starting to see some of that, Bo. Um, I'd like to, Bo, when, as a as a person who's been involved in labor and 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 really focused your attention on this climate transition piece. Um, what do you see coming down the road for your organization, uh, the Texas Climate Jobs Project? What's going on in policy uh, over the next year or so? Where is your focus and attention? Well, I think. A big part of our work is really just making sure that these federal climate priorities, uh, that the impact is maximized here in the state of Texas. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of it is just really uh, focusing on implementation, you know, making sure that uh, schools that uh, have the ability now through Department of Energy to retrofit their buildings uh, in ways that they have not been able to in decades because of uh, our state's decision to underinvest in the public education system, uh, whether that's offshore wind um, or whether that's you know the tax credits that are going toward geothermal and hydrogen. All of these things really come back to just making sure that the intent of the legislation is maximized. And so that means working with a pretty diverse group of stakeholders. It's, you know, working with uh, industry, it's working with labor unions, it's working with climate groups uh, to, you know, provide feedback on some of the federal rulemaking and uh, some of the grant making. Um, I think it's also uh, making sure that, uh, you know, uh, whether it's a city or a county uh, or the state legislature or uh, or a port, uh, that, that this, everything that we've talked about, this uh, transition uh, the need to create high-quality jobs, uh, that that is felt not just at the federal level, but at every level of government. Because uh, these uh, political subdivisions make critical decisions. Uh, anytime there's an investment of public money, it's going to lead to job creation. The question inevitably is, what kind of jobs are we creating? And so, uh, you know, making sure that workers are at the center of that, uh, whether it's in, you know, Corpus Christi or in Lubbock or in Austin or in Weatherford is um, certainly a, a daunting task, but one that is so critical to get right. So, uh, you know, our advisory board, which is comprised of labor unions, uh, has really set our agenda. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're focused on making sure that, that oil and gas workers, unionized fossil fuel workers uh, are at the center of this transition, that we're decarbonizing schools, that we're making sure that you know, things like fiber broadband expansion into low-income communities uh, are, are done in a way that create good jobs and, uh, and, and really focusing on some of this utility-scale clean energy, whether it's geothermal or, or hydrogen or solar or wind. So it's, it's a lot, uh, but, but it's, uh, it's really exciting work. All right. I have another question, and that is, it's a really exciting time. There's a lot of new, I think, we call them blue tech kind of startups. These this new companies that are uh, entering into this space, and uh, you know, I, I a lot of them I don't think are unionized. I don't I don't know if the union uh, kind of bug has taken hold in a lot of these kind of more tech company type of spaces. Do you have any 
advice or uh, instructions for how a a, a a new company or a, or a blue tech startup type of uh, example might it, look into becoming unionized and incorporating a union into their model? Well, uh, you know, the decision of whether to form a union uh, in the in the regulatory apparatus that exists in the United States is left up to the workers. Uh, you know, workers are ultimately the ones who decide whether to form a union. And the first step is to decide they do want to form a union and then decide which union they want to be a part of. And then there's a vote and then there's a bargaining process to talk about things like wages and working conditions with the employer. Uh, and so uh, the message to to the workers is, you know, if, if you're working in your job and uh, maybe it's not a great job, maybe uh, uh, you've experienced wage theft or unsafe working conditions, you should really reach out to a union uh, to make sure that you're able to uh, have a job with dignity and respect. You know, to the employers, what I would say is that over the long haul, study after study have shown uh, that unionized employers uh, are more profitable in the long haul uh, and, uh, and, and have uh, more stable work environments. They, they are, are forced to spend less on turnover because people stay at their job. They don't leave um, because they have a good job. And so there are all kinds of really important reasons uh, why having a union uh, are, is really important. Um, and so, you know, I think that's what we're going to see uh, in some of these industries is this question of whether workers uh, who are building offshore wind turbines or shipping them out to sea or building them out at sea, uh, whether they're going to have a union. And and that's going to be left up to the workers. Um, but, uh, but, but at the same time, there are things employers can do. And, and I think the number one thing that they can do uh, is give workers the space to decide in a free and fair way whether they would like to form a union. You know, I think we see some of these really large corporations like Amazon and the, and the tactics that they employ, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having anti-union literature up in the bathrooms and having captive audience meetings where you're forced to go sit in a room and listen to, to a consultant to talk about uh, why joining a union is a bad thing. And I think that there are all kinds of ways that employers can say, it's not up to me, it's up to employees, and uh, we're going to give them the space to decide on their own whether this is the right decision for them. And uh, there are plenty of examples where that exists across mm-hmm. the country. And uh, so that's that's for one very concrete thing that employers can do. Treating your people right is a good business decision. And that includes their participation in unions. The Fair Labor Standards Act, one of the cornerstones of the of, of the uh, American labor law, uh, structure 1938, Tyler. And this is the law that created the minimum wage and the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week. As you say, back in the day, there was no minimum wage. Uh, you could work your employees seven days a week, 10 hours a day if you wanted, the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed by Congress in 1938 because of the work of working of working people and union organizers at that time, and uh, it's surprising that those uh, those laws are still you have to fight to enforce them even today. Uh, this is the law that creates time and a half. So if you work you know 40 hours a week or if you work more than eight hours a day, you get time and a half. And for those guys who are working on those big construction projects and building wind towers and ships and boats and this hard work, 
that's the Fair Labor Standards Act in the American Labor Union that that protects their financial interest. And it's and I, a damn good thing. And I think I we mean, should come take, on. We got to keep doing it. We should take pride in the work that our laborers do. Uh, they build our country and they build our infrastructure and we are reliant on them and we are uh, hand in hand in in society with them. And that's what Labor Day is an acknowledgement of. And I think, Bo, that timeless uh, tension that exists, that it's a reminder that we, uh, a reminder of that tension and that we have to keep on pushing because the tension will always be there pushing back the other direction. There's no stopping. Uh, Bo, any any last words before we wrap up the show? No, I just really appreciate y'all uh, having me on. Um, it's very exciting time um, and uh, uh, really cool to get to hear more about uh, you know what what y'all are focused on and uh, and I think um, look, it's it's a transformational moment and I think people are going to look back in thirty or forty years and. Uh, you know, really see uh, that that this moment is is unlike anything that we've experienced uh, in recent memory, and um, so I think we just have, you know, with with those kind of moments, we have really important decisions to make, and there's a way that we can get it right, and there's a way that we can get it wrong, and uh, my hope is that everyone's better angels will will prevail, and uh, we'll decide collectively that uh, that that we need. Uh, the economy to look different than it does now, that we need to address racial inequality in the state of Texas and income inequality in the state of Texas. And by doing that, through this clean energy transition, we can dramatically reduce carbon emissions. And so they, they're all these priorities that are mutually reinforcing. Yeah. And uh, so just so excited to get to, to share that with y'all. And uh, thank you for having me on. Well, it's as you say, it's a chance to build a better America. It's not enough to do better with solar power or wind power. We got to do better as a society. These transitional moments are critical. It's people like you, Bo, that are out there working and thinking about this and making sure that these considerations are at the table. It's absolutely a service to the country. I want to th- let's just say thanks for your service, to use a platitude. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Bo Delp. He's the executive director of the Texas Climate Jobs Project. What a treat. What a cool thing to talk about on Labor Day. Bo, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and insights to the listeners on the American Shoreline podcast. Going too far, never coming back again.